Well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read this whole chapter, but we're going to focus on the first 12 verses. You might recall that last week we began looking at 1 Thessalonians, and we saw how Paul gave great thanks and rejoiced over the work that God had done among the church in Thessalonica. Remember, he had really only been able to minister to them, he and Silas, for about three weeks before they had to flee the city. And yet, God, by His Spirit and by His Word, through the labors of young Timothy and others, had worked greatly among them, so that the power of God and the Spirit of God were evident among these saints. Well, now Paul turns his attention for a bit back to himself and Silas and the work that they've done. And then he's going to to talk about the church again a bit in the end of the chapter. But, But notice especially the first 12 verses. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as nursing, a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthily of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which, is, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of God beloved through Christ Jesus, seldom is it wise in life 
to commend oneself. I mean, it's almost impossible to do that without appearing to be self-serving. Folks get turned off when they think that you think too much of yourself, and it can often backfire. You speak highly of yourself, and they think less of you. You defend yourself, and they suspect your motives. All in all, it's wiser to let others sing your praises rather than to do so yourself. But there are times in which a man must stand up and defend himself. And this is the situation that seems to have faced Paul. Now, we don't know exactly what folks were saying about him. But it's quite clear that he had enemies who were slandering both him and the work that he was doing. Judging by his defense here... His enemies were claiming that Paul's message was untrustworthy. He tended to embrace errors. You couldn't rely on Paul to always tell you what was true. They were saying that Paul's motives were selfish. He was trying to get rich through his ministry or trying to get famous through his ministry. He wanted to be someone. That's why he did what he did. In short, they were claiming that it was unwise for anyone to follow after Paul... Because one could never quite tell where he was going to lead. Problem is, in slandering the apostle, they're inherently slandering also his message. And his message was nothing less than the gospel that saves us. So Paul had no choice but to defend himself, lest the gospel of Christ be rendered ineffective. And his defense is what we find here in our text. But here's the thing, in defending his ministry among the the folks of Thessalonica, Paul set forth a beautiful lesson concerning how a godly minister should act, what he should preach, what should drive his heart. We find here a standard against which we can measure ministers in any age, in any place. And that's helpful for this congregation. Because quite soon you'll need to call a minister. And that involves evaluating a whole host of men to determine, well, hopefully not just who you like, but who is equipped and prepared to serve the saints here in Pella. So how will you evaluate those men? What questions will you ask? What standard will you use to judge? We do quite well to consider how Paul, here in this text, defends a commendable ministry to Christ's church. Because in that defense, we find some beautiful yardsticks, some beautiful lessons that we can use to determine whom God might be calling here. God's servant defends a commendable ministry to Christ's church. And he begins doing that by showing how he proclaimed a God-pleasing message. Again, we remember what we saw last week that Paul and Silas were celebrating the spiritual strength of the church in Thessalonica. They were overjoyed to see how strong of a church this had become, how they were spreading the gospel message, how they were living out the truth of the word. But now their work has been called into question. Wicked men have risen up saying that Paul and Silas, when they spoke, they were insincere. They're questioning their motives. They're questioning the truth they taught. So they respond. 
First of all, by pointing to the power of their ministry in Thessalonica. Look at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, he's not talking just about the way they entered the city of Thessalonica. He's talking about their ministry, their way of behaving and speaking among the people of Thessalonica. And the way they came, he says, was literally not empty. That's an interestingly vague statement. It could mean that their coming was not without effect. Talking about the result of their work, the ultimate end. Or it could mean that their coming was not without power. The power that they themselves revealed through the Holy Spirit. And really, I think it's vague because Paul means to imply both. They knew that the ministry of Paul and Silas had great effect. They were the result. Their changed lives, their faith. But they also knew the power that these men showed as they proclaimed the gospel with all faithfulness and truth. Look at verse 13. You received the word that you heard from us, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You know, says Paul, you were witnesses of how we came to you, how we ministered among you. We came as men who were suffering, but also were bold. They're suffering. Well, Paul's suffering is renowned, right? Long before he made it to Thessalonica, he had been slandered, beaten, imprisoned, whipped. When he came to Thessalonica, he came after having been beaten with rods in Philippi and then kept in jail overnight. And then when the magistrates realized the miscarriage of justice that they had perpetrated, they sent them forth with apologies, but they sent them forth nonetheless. And as soon as they got to Thessalonica, there were people who began speaking against them. They knew what it was to suffer and that's important because if, if these men had been seeking personal gain, whether riches or reputation, they wouldn't have kept doing it in that context. It was clear they weren't going to get rich. It was clear they weren't going to get famous this way. They were going to get infamous. And yet, nonetheless, despite the suffering, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. They were bold, not hesitating to say what needed to be said because they spoke and they acted in our God, says Paul. In other words, their courage was born neither of circumstances nor of themselves. It was because of the presence and the power of God the Holy Spirit that they spoke with such boldness. They were, dis they were bold despite all their suffering, despite all their hardship, because they had been sent to declare the gospel of God. The word of life, the revelation entrusted to them by the Lord himself. Folks, this is important in our evaluation of a minister. Because the Christian ministry done faithfully is not easy. It's not easy even to enter the ministry. It takes much time and effort and disruption of one's life and, and struggle academically and, and spiritually to prepare for that work. And there are hardships in the ministry. There's... None of the certainty that comes with so many other careers. There are unrelenting time or demands on your, your time and your attention. There's pressure that weighs not just on the man but on his wife and on his children. And then there's the opposition against the minister. Cruel slander by unbelievers, sometimes unjust criticism by fellow believers, physical persecution by a world that hates the message that we proclaim. Even here in America, serving as a minister is not always easy. It's often not. The question is, how will the minister of the Word handle those hardships? Will he fold under the pressure? Will he fight fire with unrighteous flames? 
Will he wallow in self-pity? Will he give way to bitterness? Or, or will he dig deep in prayer and seek the help of God and persevere boldly in the midst? That's what a faithful servant of God must do. Now, of course, we all fall short. We all have our moments of weakness. But if God has called a man, then God will equip and sustain that man. And He will cause them to persevere. He will cause them to fall to their knees in the midst of hardship. He will cause them to pray Psalm 59 like we just read concerning those who oppose Him. But He will cause them to boldly proclaim the Word knowing that it is that which His persecutors most need and it is that which the church in the midst of persecution needs. And then He goes on to address some of the specific criticisms that he had faced. Folks had called the content of his preaching into question. Some said that what he preached arose from error. In other words, he spoke what was wrong. Others said that he he preached from uncleanness. He was bringing a message of immorality. And still others said he was deceptive. He was leading men astray. And all of it, Paul vehemently denies. We, says Paul in verse 4, We are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. In other words, God himself had tested Paul and Silas. He had set before them challenges to see if they would soften the message, if they would compromise so as to please men rather than him. And when they, when they succeeded, when they withstood that test, he entrusted them with the gospel to go forth into all of Asia, to go forth into Macedonia. They had been given this rich privilege and this, this responsibility to take this treasure that had been given to them and to bring it to those who knew nothing of the truth, who knew nothing of true life. And it was on the basis of that trust, of that treasure that had been given to them, of the knowledge that God had given them something they could never have earned, that Paul and Silas came and with passion spoke, carefully guarding the word entrusted to them. They knew that it wasn't theirs to manipulate. It wasn't theirs to, to change and mold and shape. No, it was the, the word entrusted by God Himself to them. Again, this outlook is crucial to our evaluation of a minister. Because everyone loves to be loved, right? But the affirmation of men should never be what motivates a minister. That should be true for all of us, regardless of our calling, but especially one entrusted with proclaiming the Word of God. But how do we measure up? And looking at ministers, how do we tell? Well, listen. Listen to the man's sermons, not just one or two, but a number of them, and ask, is he comforting the afflicted with the gospel while afflicting those who are at ease in their sin? Does he rebuke sin with boldness and call men to Christ with greater boldness? Or does he stay generic? Does he refuse to actually hit the soft spots, the places that might hurt, the, the things that might make people scowl? Whom does he seek to please? Does he seek to please God by proclaiming his word without compromise? Because God is the one who entrusted that word to him. Or is he seeking to tickle the ears of men? Is he telling them what they want to hear? Is he ensuring that he will not offend? If a man is to preach the gospel faithfully, 
He will offend. He will get people upset at times. But the mark of a godly minister is even when they criticize him, even when they come up to him with a scowl and refuse to shake his hand, even then he will proclaim the message boldly that God has entrusted to him. That's the message that he brings. And then Paul moves on to the motive. It's not enough to speak to the people the right words. We have to also speak for the right reasons. And that's our second point. Paul defends a ministry that cultivates a God-reflecting motive. In verses 5 and 6, the apostle identifies and rejects three wrong motives for preaching the gospel. The first is flattery. The Greek phrase there, the Greek term has the idea of using nice words, pleasing words, in order to manipulate people. Always there are those who have sought to use the ministry to flatter men. They tickle the ears by telling people exactly what they want to hear. They tell people they're good enough and they're smart enough and doggone it, God likes them. But never, never do they mention sin and misery. They don't make people uncomfortable. They don't dig deep into the reality of the sins of this congregation. But a faithful minister must. People will not turn to Christ if they think that they're sufficient of themselves. They won't entrust themselves to Him if they think they're okay. So Paul and Silas, they renounced all forms of flattery and also the motives of covetousness or greed. He uses the phrase, a cloak For covetousness, he's describing how some people speak insincere words because they seek gain. It's the televangelist motive, right? If you want to be blessed, you've got to bless me. If you want gain, you've got to give. And we see this. Ministers who claim that God says the church needs to buy them a big mansion or insincere men who cozy up to the rich in order to enrich themselves. Now, it's not wrong for the minister to... Earn his living by the people from whom he ministers. God's word says that. But never should he be driven by the urge to please those who can enrich him. Nor should his motive be the glory of men. That's a different form of riches, isn't it? Again, we like to be liked. That's why a big pulpit can be a drug. Men want respect. They want to be spoken well of. And they get addicted to that. We see it often in the American church today. Men who insist on being addressed by their title and get all bent out of shape if you dare call them by their first name. Men who are unwilling to hear criticism, claiming that they alone are worthy to or qualified to judge the faithfulness of their ministry. Men who are always fishing for compliments and who swell up like a balloon when you call them domine. But Paul says never. Let a man's glory be from God alone. That's what Paul and Silas sought to do. Their office was worthy of glory, as is the office of any minister. To be called to preach the Word of God is a great gift and a privilege from God. But these men refused to take advantage of that gift. Instead, they cultivated among the Thessalonians gentleness, not seeking glory from them, but presenting themselves as the merest of servants. Paul compares himself and Titus to a nursing mother who cherishes her own children. You know, a mother is inherently worthy of honor by the office of her motherhood. That's why next week, probably on Friday or Saturday, most of you men and most of you children will scramble to go and find some flowers or or some chocolates for mom to show her 
the honor that she deserves, which we typically remember on Mother's Day here in the United States. But that's not why they do what they do. They serve their children selflessly because they love them. They get up in the middle of the night to sit with one who is sick. They clean up messes that no one else wants to clean up. They change diapers day and night. They train them and they nurture them. They're there to comfort them and also to admonish them. And they put up with it when their children don't give them the honor that they deserve. Not because they expect some pay, not because they expect some reward, but because they love those children God has entrusted to them. And that is how Paul sought to love and serve the saints of Thessalonica. And so to that end, verse 8, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you became dear to us. Folks, this is the greatest motive for ministry that has yet been discovered. Many are they who seek the honor and the glory of men, who seek to enrich themselves, who seek all sorts of worldly things. But no one will faithfully serve the church in the way God calls him to who does not know and love the sheep of the Lord's sheepfold. That's the motive we need to be looking for. Does this man love God's people? That idea of a shepherd is so important. Jesus calls himself the chief shepherd. He says the the true shepherd, he knows the sheep and the sheep know him. I'll be honest, that's one area where I've fallen short here. That I've not been able to get to know all of the sheep. The ones who were in trouble, the ones who were weak, the ones who went through a, a difficult patch, sure, absolutely. But, but there are so many that it's been hard to get to know. But that's what we as ministers need to strive to do, is to get to know all the sheep. Watch a dairy farmer who really cares about his cattle. He knows which ones like to get milked first and which ones would rather wait in the back a little bit. He knows which ones need a, a gentle nudge and which ones need a little bit more than that. He knows all of their tricks. He knows which ones have a sore, which ones might be fighting an illness. He's inspecting them constantly and that's what a, a faithful minister must be doing. Seeking to know the people of God well enough to minister well to them with what the word with the word that they need to hear. That's why children trust their mothers, isn't it? Because they know her and she knows them and she has since they were in the womb. They trust their mothers because they know that their mother knows them and loves them and would do anything for them. Folks, it is for this that you must diligently search as you seek the minister whom you would call. As you visit with each one, ask, does this man understand us? Does he understand the kind of struggles that we go through? Does he understand what it is to, to raise children or to struggle with bills for Christian tuition? Does he know what it's like to work with his hands? Does he know what it's like to, to struggle through a, a very difficult period in the life of a church? And is he experienced enough to have time to get to know so very many well? A young minister 
He needs to spend a lot of time in the study. He needs to spend a lot of time working on God's Word. And that doesn't leave a whole lot of time for getting to know all of the sheep. So you need someone who's experienced enough to have time out in the sheepfold, out in the pasture. And does he desire to love the sheep of Christ's flock with the love of the chief shepherd? Will he, will he strive to show that? Will he tr- try to, to live among the lambs so that he can share the love of God and the life of himself with them? This is the motive that reflects the Lord God himself, the motive of tender, familiar love. Remember, God loved his people enough to come and live among them in Christ. And still today, through the Holy Spirit, He is with us. Never are we truly apart from the Lord. And why? Because He loves us. So pray that God would send you a minister who loves you with the selfless love of Christ. That's the only thing that can bring us up here to proclaim the word boldly and faithfully and tenderly every week. It's because we love you. And if you don't have a minister who loves you, then, then he's a mercenary and he's not going to give his, his full effort. He's not going to, to reach your heart. So pray that God would work in the heart of the man whom you would be led to call to begin leading him to love you even now. As for Paul and Silas, they point out that motive and then, and then they highlight the evidence of their love. And that's what we see in the last section of our text. Our third point is that they defend the ministry of serving in a Christ-like manner. Verse 9, the apostle points out the labor and the toil engaged in by himself and Silas. Now this is something that the saints of Thessalonica saw firsthand. They saw how Paul and Silas studied God's word so that they would have a faithful word to preach. They witnessed the long hours of conversations between Paul and Silas and new believers who needed the gospel explained to them and bringing comfort to those who mourned and admonishing those who were living in sin and urging faith in Christ to all of them. And at the same time, they saw how these men engaged in physical labor, not because they didn't have the right to receive from the church there, but recognizing their youth and loving them. They didn't want to set a stumbling block before them. And so, having ministered all day, they toiled into the night making tents. All of this the Thessalonians saw, as did God Himself. And that was important. The apostle was setting an example for the church. They weren't lazy in using their gifts by any means. They weren't interested in putting a burden in front of those whom God was calling They cultivated a spiritual character that would preach about God without speaking a word. Look, they they acted devoutly, showing the new believers firsthand what holiness looked like. They behaved justly, embracing the law of God so that people could see the righteousness of Christ in them. And in fact, they sought to live in such a way that they could say, blamelessly, we behaved ourselves. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Blamelessly, we behaved ourselves. What Paul describes here is a form of preaching in which the preacher doesn't even say a word. He's seeking to show the character of God by his life. That's not to say preaching isn't important. But if the words that we speak don't match the life that we live, then those words mean nothing. And so he and Silas, they lived 
before God's people as a father before his children. Loving each one of them as a child who has been entrusted to them. Teaching by their very behavior how God wants us to live. Knowing as a a wise father does. That that old phrase, do as I say, not as I do, never works. Like a father. They exhorted and comforted and charged each one of you. They weren't just teaching the truth of God's word. They were walking beside these spiritually immature saints. And showing them what living out the gospel looks like. Again, this is the character you must seek in a minister of the word. Ask those who already know these men. How does he minister to those who are new in the faith? To those who struggle with doubts. To those living openly in their sin. To those brought low by their grief. Ask whether these men set God's own character before the congregation. And if he doesn't. If his character is worldly, if his walk stands opposed to his talk, if his character is not at least a dim reflection of Christ, then look elsewhere. Because no sermon preaches as loudly as the sermon of a man's life. An unbeliever who comes and sits in these pews, he's not initially going to hear the word that is proclaimed. He's going to see the man who is proclaiming it. And if that man is standoffish, if he is not genuine, if he lives his life in a way that is contrary to the word that he speaks, he's not going to listen to another word. And it's not just the unbelievers or the new believers, it's our children. You know, as adults, we have a remarkable ability to justify one another's sins, to overlook one another's shortcomings. In some ways, that's a measure of grace. We shouldn't be overly critical with each other. But youth, they have a radar for hypocrisy. And they will see if a minister is not living the kind of life that he's preaching. And they'll turn him off. But a man whose behavior is unique, a man who receives criticism humbly, a man who is passionate about the truth of God, a man who guards his tongue when he's frustrated, a man who apologizes when he offends and forgives those who offend him. Such a man earns a hearing for the gospel even among those who don't yet know Christ. So seek out such a man who serves in a Christ-like manner. Beloved brothers and sisters, as a church family We face, you face, in the coming months, a daunting task. The task of seeking out the man whom God would use to feed us from His Word. The task of sifting through all the possible candidates, looking for the one who has been prepared for this church. And there are so many criteria we might use to judge such men. I just went through a bunch of ministerial questionnaires to refresh myself about what kind of questions some folks ask. There's a lot of criteria you could use. How easy is he to listen to? How likable is this guy? How many kids does he have? How does he school them? Where did he go to seminary? Who are his favorite theologians? What books does he read? What television shows or radio shows does he listen to? So many questions. But here's the truth that really matters. Does he cultivate a commendable ministry in Christ's church? That is, does he proclaim a message that pleases God? Does he do so because of a motive that reflects the love of God? And does he do it in a manner that reflects Christ to God's people? Now, there's no minister on this side of glory that does it perfectly. 
No matter who you call, he's going to have flaws. You're going to think he's wonderful for the first six months and then the cracks are going to show up, the flaws, the failures. You're going to find out he's human. But if he is cultivating a commendable ministry by this standard, and if he is constantly falling on his knees before God asking him to sharpen his message, to deepen his motive, and to polish his manner so that people see and hear Christ from him, then the church will be built and God will be glorified. So let that be our prayer. That God would lead such a man to serve these beloved saints. That God might be glorified not just through him, but through you. As God uses him to sharpen your walk before the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You alone are able to use sinful and broken men to minister in a way that reflects Christ to those who hear. And we thank You that You do so. We pray that You would equip and prepare the man whom You would ultimately call to serve here. And we ask, Lord, that You would give us the wisdom and the insight and the patience to seek out and find that man whom You have set apart for this work so that through him and through us You might gain all the more glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.